All right. Well, let's start off in Genesis chapter 1 tonight. We started last uh, Wednesday a series that we'll call Spiritual Dominion. Uh, unless we've already got other series called Spiritual Dominion. If so, then we'll change the title. I, I'm not good on titles. These guys are always asking me what I want to call something, and I'll tell them what idea I have, and they say, well, we've already got something that's called that. So anyway, we're in a series that we're going to talk about spiritual dominion no matter what we call it. Genesis chapter 1 tells us the story of creation. Verse 26, and God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. One of the Great truths, indisputable fact, indisputable truths of the Bible is that man was created to have dominion over the earth. Now, that doesn't mean everybody accepts that. Doesn't mean everybody agrees with it. Doesn't mean that everybody chooses to walk in it. But the Bible could not be more clear in telling us that the purpose that God had from the beginning in concerning the creation of man was for man to have dominion over the works of his hands. Now, I'll invite you to uh, turn with me also over to Psalm 8. We're going to come back to uh, Genesis 1. So you might want to put your finger there or put something there to get back to it quickly. But Psalm 8 tells us the same thing in a different, uh, different format, different manner. It speaks to us of that which the angels said at creation. Psalm 8, verse 3, it says, When I consider the, the heavens, the work of thy fingers, the moon and the stars which thou hast ordained, what is man that thou art mindful of him, and the son of man that thou visitest him? For thou hast made him a little lower than the angels, and hast crowned him with glory and honor. Thou madest him to have dominion over the works of thy hands. Thou hast put all things under his feet. Now, I think it's uh, worth mentioning here, that where it says thou hast made him a little lower than the angels in verse 5 this word angels is the word Elohim it's the word that's used for God in the Old Testament it's the word that's most, uh, that is mostly used for God in the book of Genesis thou hast made him a little lower than Elohim than God himself now back to Genesis chapter 1 we'll come back to Psalm 8 too so you might want to put something there uh, we're going to look at some many scriptures and flip back and forth to things. We'll have your Bible smoking before the night's over. But notice in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, God said, let us make man in our own image after our own likeness. God had something in mind before he ever created man. He had something in mind. And that something he had in mind was a new creation, new creation up until that point. Now talking about the new creation of the new birth. But it was something that had never been created before. And so when the angels saw and heard God speaking, the Godhead conversing about God's plan, God talking to Jesus and the Holy Spirit, and said, let us make man in our own image, the angels are saying, you're going to do what? What is man? And what is it that, that man has this special place with you so that you're going to give him dominion over the works of your hands. In other words, the angels recognized that man, that which God was contemplating and planning to create, was going to be different than themselves. At this point in time, at the, at the point that God creates the earth or recreates the earth and puts man in the Garden of Eden, the angels, a third of the angels have already rebelled against God. They've been cast into outer darkness, put in chains of darkness until the end. The Bible says the angels are sealed, which means they do not have a right of choice any longer. At one time they did, and a third of them chose to rebel against God, but no longer do they have a choice. They made their choice. It's an eternal choice. Two-thirds of the angels chose to be servants of God, and they will be throughout eternity. One-third of the angels rebelled and chose to rebel against God and follow Satan. And they'll be destroyed with him at the last day. So the angels are looking at man as being a totally new creation. Something different than, than they've ever experienced. Something different than has ever been created. What is man that thou art mindful of him? You made him a little lower than yourself. When God said let us make man in our own image and after our own likeness. He's saying 
we're going to make man as close to ourselves as we can. As close to ourselves as we can. Now back up in Genesis chapter 1. I think it's verse 11. God creates a bunch of stuff. Separates the day from the night and so forth. But notice in verse 11 it says, And God said, Let the earth bring forth grass, the herb yielding seed, and the fruit tree yielding fruit after his kind, whose seed is in itself upon the earth, and it was so. Now notice verse 11 again. It says, God brought forth the, the grass, the herb yielding seed, and the fruit tree, and the fruit tree yielding fruit after his kind. Why would God call a fruit tree his? Why would he use a personal pronoun speaking of a fruit tree? Who, to whom, does this personal pronoun his refer to? Well, we can say in a a specific sense that the fruit tree produces after its own kind. That's true. But notice what it says about the fruit tree in describing the fruit tree. The fruit tree yielding fruit after his kind, its seed being in itself. When God's talking about the fruit tree, he's talking about it being in it, as is appropriate. Can you think of any circumstance where a fruit tree would be a his, a he or a his? The his is referring to God. And here's the law of Genesis. The law of creation is that everything produces after his kind, not its kind, his kind. Now, certainly everything produces after its kind. But God created the earth to produce after his kind. Now, what does that mean? Well, that means that the fruit tree produced only perfect fruit. It was impossible for any fruit on any tree that God created because it was created after his kind. And everything God does is good and perfect. That means it would be impossible for any fruit tree to have any fruit that had a blemish or soft spot or a worm or anything that would mar it in any way, manner whatsoever. That's why at the end of the days of creation, God looks at them and says it was very good. Now, what does that mean? Very good. Well, good is a subjective term. It's relative to other things. We can have something that we consider good in comparison to one thing, but in comparing it to something else, it might not be so good. So let's quantify what God meant when it said, or what the Bible means when it said God looked at the creation and said that it was very good. Could it be anything other than perfect? Could it be anything other than absolutely perfect and be God's creation? Are you with me? So when God says, when God's established the law of Genesis in motion, and remember this is before the fall. This is the way God created things to be. That's not necessarily the way things are now. But God created the earth to produce after His kind. In other words, to operate and to function perfectly in every way and in every manner. So in what manner did God create man, his offspring, to be? Good and perfect. That's the way you were created to be. Let us make man in our own image after our own likeness. Where it says that the fruit tree produced after his, meaning God's kind, That's the same thing as God saying, let us make man in our own image. Our image, the image of God, is the kind unto which man was created. Now, if or since the fruit tree produces perfect fruit, God's created the fruit trees and it produces after his kind. So the only thing it can produce is perfect fruit. Can't be a rotten apple anywhere. And its seed is in itself. That means you could take the seed and plant the seed from that perfect apple. And it would make another fruit tree that would produce perfect fruit. Only perfect fruit. And that's the way God created man to be. That's the same type. The same condition. That God intended for man to operate in as he exercises dominion on the earth. Now another thing about image and likeness. You've been created in the image and likeness of God. What does that mean? We know that image means the kind and the same perfect nature as God himself. But what about likeness? Well, we could certainly understand that we, we have an appearance like God. 
For example, in the Old Testament, it tells us that we're, uh, a number of times that uh, um, God appeared unto man in visible form, physical form, and God didn't show up as 40 foot tall. He didn't show up as, as some giant God sitting on a throne in heaven or anything like that. Sometimes people imagine things to be. He looked like a human being. Moses saw him in physical form, at least his back parts. And it describes that which appears to be in likeness, the human body. Isaac wrestled with the angel. I'm sorry, Jacob wrestled with the angel. Which was a a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus here on the earth. And he recognized him to be just a man or in physical form as a man. So likeness would certainly include appearance. But is that all there is? I don't know of any other place where God would just be concerned about appearance. The Bible says man's concerned about appearing, how things appear, but God looks on the heart. So what do we know of concerning God that would make man in his God's likeness? Well, 10 times in the creation story, it tells us that God said, all that Psalm 8 tells us that the, is considered to be the work of God's hands that man has dominion over, every bit of that was created by words. So what would you expect following the law of Genesis, everything made after his, God's kind, in type and in result, what would you expect the offspring of God, that which is made as close to God as possible, should expect to operate or how you should expect to operate when the Bible tells us that on 10 different occasions God created or affected the world through the words that he spoke. See, folks, that's what image and likeness means. It means to exercise dominion over the earth in a form as close to God as he could make you. And likeness has to do with you communicating your will your plan, your purpose, your authority on the earth through the words that you speak. Now turn back with me to Psalm 8. Did you lose that yet? What is man that thou art mindful of him and the son of man that thou visitest him? Let's back up to verse 1. Let's see the context of which of these words that were spoken about man in the creation. It says, O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is thy name in all the earth who has set thy glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth, everybody say mouth. Out of the mouth of babes and sucklings, thou hast ordained strength because of thine enemies. Now, a lot of translations will translate this in something regarding praise. Out of the mouth of babes and sucklings, thou hast ordained praise, one translation says. Other translations say similar things. And that would certainly be true. That would certainly include what God is saying. But the, the reality of what he's saying is very simply this. It's saying strength is exercised by even the smallest, the youngest, the weakest through the words of your mouth because of thine enemies. Because of thine enemies. Out of the mouth of babes and sucklings hast thou ordained strength. How is the strength of God manifested? Out of your mouth. That's how you exercise authority. That's how you operate against the enemy. Out of the mouth of babes and sucklings hast thou ordained strength because of thine enemies that thou mightest still the enemy and the avenger. How do you stop the devil in his attacks against you? By the words of your mouth. Well, Pastor Mike, wouldn't that include praise? Sure it would. That'd be a big part of it. But that's not the only part of it. When I consider the the heavens, the work of thy fingers, the moon and the stars which thou hast ordained, what is man that thou art mindful of him and the son of man that thou visitest him? Why did you make man so important to yourself, God? For thou hast hast made him a little lower than the angels, a little lower than Elohim, God himself, and hast crowned him with glory and the honor. Thou madest him to have dominion over the works of thy hands. Thou hast put all things under his feet. Thou hast put all things under his feet. Man was created to have dominion. 
Man was created. You were created to have dominion. Now turn with me over to Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2. Let's start reading in verse... uh, Well, let's start in verse 6. Now, verse 5. For unto the angels has he not put in subjection the world to come whereof we speak. Paul is talking about, I believe Paul is the writer of the book of Hebrews. We know it certainly fits in with the things that he wrote to other churches in uh, uh, some of the other epistles, New Testament epistles. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 3, I believe it is, that we will judge the angels in the world to come. We will judge the angels in the world to come. Now keep that in mind because he's going to talk about the angels a bit here. He says, for unto the angels has he not put in subjection the world to come. He did not plan and ordain for the angels to operate in a, in a manner of, or a capacity of uh, dominion in the world to come. But one, meaning one of the angels, but one in a certain place testified saying, what is man that thou art mindful of him? Or the son of man that thou visitest him. We just read that in Psalm 8. See Paul tells us by the Holy Ghost. That the angels are the ones that spoke that. Now certainly it came by revelation. To the psalmist. But the Holy Ghost is telling us that one of the angels. At the point of creation. Questioned God. Not in a, not in a bad way. Just an inquiring way. About who man was. And the place that man would hold in God's plan of creation but one in a certain place testified saying what is man that thou art mindful of him or the son of man that thou visitest him thou madest him a little lower than the angels now this word angels is a different word because it's in the original greek not the hebrew the old testament uh, uh, was written in hebrew so psalm 8 is hebrew for elohim the word translated uh, angels in psalm 8 uh, what is it 8 5 something like that thou madest him a little lower than the angels That's the word Elohim. It stands for God. This was taken from the Old Testament Hebrew and translated into the the Greek and then translated into the, uh, or spoken into the Greek and then translated into the English language. This is a different word for angels. But we know that since Paul, uh, the author, forgive me, we know that since the author is talking about Psalm 8, we know that he understands the meaning thereof. As I said, 1 Corinthians 6.3 talks about the angels being judged by man. It says man will judge the angels in the world to come. Well, we can't be lower than the angels, the angelic spirits. Man can't be created lower than them if he's going to judge them. The greater is never judged by the lesser, is it? So if man, it's revealed to us that man will judge the angels in the world to come, then man has to be created higher than the angels And the angels, the word angels is referred to in the scripture. Goes back to the original meaning, which is Elohim, God himself. Thou hast made him a little lower than the angels. Thou hast crowned him with glory and honor. And did set him over the works of thy hands. Thou hast put all things in subjection under his feet. For in that he put all in subjection under him. He left nothing, nothing. That is not put under him. But now we see not yet all things put under him. In other words Paul's saying. It doesn't look like that right now. This is God's plan. And this is the way it's going to turn out. But it doesn't look that way now. Folks what I want you to see is. God created man to be the. Literally the God of this world. Now the word God is a little g. Not big g. God never stops being God. And man never becomes equal with God in that sense. But he created man to be the ruler of this world. Well, first, or 2 Corinthians 4.4 4 tells us now that Satan is the God of this world. We end the, the story of creation with man being the ruler of all of God's hands. But we get over to the New Testament and we find out that Satan is the one that's the ruler of this world. How did that happen? He got that authority from Adam when he fell in the Garden of Eden. At the temptation, one of the things that the devil tempted Jesus with... He showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said, all this authority and all this glory I will give you if you'll fall down and worship me for that 
the authority thereof and the glory involved with all the world kingdoms, past, present, and future. For that has been delivered unto me, Satan said. That has been delivered unto me, he said. Well, who delivered it? God sure didn't give it to him. The Bible tells us that God's plan was for man to operate in authority, for man to have dominion over the works of God's hands. Well, how did Satan get it? He got it from the one God gave it to, which was Adam. When Adam fell, that's what he lost. But there's good news. The good news is Jesus came back to the earth, paid the price for sin, redeemed mankind. And the first thing that he said in Matthew chapter 28 when he was raised from the dead, he said, all authority is given unto me in heaven and earth. Go ye therefore. In other words, Jesus restored that place of authority to mankind. Satan is still the God of this world, but he's not the God of the believer. He's still the God of this world, but he doesn't have authority over the believer's life. Who knows how to exercise that authority? You're the one that has authority over the devil in your life. That'd be great if we had authority over the devil and we could just bind him from doing any work anywhere in the world. But he still has authority on the earth. He just doesn't have it over us. He does have authority over those who don't know. And he does have authority until his lease runs out. Until the end of the church age. And that's when the tribulation period begins. And you see all kinds of things taking place. Because the church is removed from the scene. So back to Hebrews chapter 2. Thou hast, verse 8 again. Thou hast put all things under subjection under his feet. For in that he put all in subjection under him, he left nothing that is not put under him. But now we see not yet all things put under him. Things are still going to change as time goes by. Notice verse 9. But we see Jesus. But we see Jesus. Notice he's talking about Jesus in connection with man's authority and God's original plan for man to have dominion. But we see Jesus who is made a little lower than the angels. Now, this is the same word angels, but you know as well as I do that Jesus was not made lower than the angels, meaning the angelic spirits. But it does say that he was made a little lower than Elohim. It would have to be a reference to the same thing that Psalm 8 is talking about. Well, how could Jesus, who's part of Elohim, be made it under or lower than the Elohim, the Godhead? Well, let's keep reading. But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, for the suffering of death. The only way that Jesus was beneath God the Father and the Holy Spirit was so that he could come to the earth and operate in a human body. The fact that we're operating in human bodies, the fact that Jesus operated in human body, of necessity made him lower than God, meaning the Godhead. It means it was a step down from the position that he held as a part of the Trinity before he was born of a virgin and came to the earth now why was that necessary because it's the human body that gives man the vehicle to exercise authority on the earth i don't know if you know this or not and and i know in some circles this would be controversial and some to some people this would be blasphemous but god does not have a right to operate in the earth apart from or outside of the authority of a man exercised through a human body, flesh and bone body, operating according to God's plan and purpose as revealed by the word. So many times, so much of the church is praying, oh God, come do this. Well, how's he going to do that? The Bible says out of the mouth of even the youngest, even the smallest, even the weakest human beings, He's ordained strength to still the enemy and the avenger. So much of the church spends their time praying for God to do things that God gave them authority to do. But we see Jesus, back to verse 9, I guess it is. But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he by the grace of God should taste death for every man. You know what Paul is saying? Paul is saying, 
Jesus is the example for how man should operate in authority and dominion here on the earth. Because just as Jesus was made a little lower than the angels for the purpose of suffering death for all of mankind, that's the way that God created man to operate here in the earth too. You remember in uh, John chapter 3, it tells us that Nicodemus came to uh, um, Jesus by night and said, Good master, we know that thou art come from God, for no man can do these miracles that you do except God be with him. And Jesus said, You must be born again. Talks to him about the new birth. You remember that? What is Jesus saying? He's saying that man, who was then in his fallen condition, because of Adam's transgression against the commandment of God, where the authority of the dominion of the earth was transferred over to Satan and under his control, Jesus is saying man must be born again to be restored to that place of dominion where the supernatural and even the miraculous can be accomplished. Since God created man after his kind or in his image, another way to say that is in his image and after his likeness, The Bible is telling us that God expects man to operate in the miraculous because that's the way he was created. And anything less than that would deprive God of the opportunity of looking at us and saying that's very good. Or according to the original plan, which is perfection. Now, folks, I'm not talking about perfection in the sense that we never sin, we never miss it, we never make a mistake. I'm not talking about that. The Bible gives us 1 John 1, 9 to fix that when we do sin. We confess our sins. He's faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the perfection of exercising God's will here on the earth through the exercise of dominion that he gave to mankind and restored through the work of Jesus. Are you out there? Is this making any sense? Turn with me over to John chapter 10. John chapter 10. Oh, let's see. I want to read a little bit of this. Let's back up to verse 22 to get the context. It says, And it was at Jerusalem, the feast of the dedication, and it was winter. And Jesus walked in the temple in Solomon's porch. Then came the Jews round about him and said unto him, How long dost thou make us to doubt? If thou be the Christ, tell us plainly. Now we know for a fact from their reaction and their response that they don't want to know if Jesus is the Messiah because they want to believe in him. They want to hear Jesus say plainly that he is the Messiah so that they can trap him and and take him captive and so forth Jesus answered them I told you and you believe not the works that I do in my father's name they bear witness of me now let me remind you that there's no punctuation in the original text and so the punctuation that we read and that I just read in the King James translation is there because the translators added it well in most cases I think they did a wonderful job but there are some places where it could be punctuated differently And it might change the meaning a little bit. For example, in uh, the King James translation, it says, Jesus answered them, I told you and you believe not. And then there's a colon or a pause. Well, that may not be where where it should pause. Let me read it a little differently to you. Jesus answered them, I told you and you believe not the works that I do in my father's name. Period. They bear witness of me. Remember, Jesus said at the last supper with the disciples that he was going to his father. And remember, one of them said, how can we know the way to the father, like you just said, when we don't even know where you're going? And it was Philip, I believe it was, and Jesus answered and said, have I been with you so long, Philip, and you have not known me? Else believe me for the work's sake. In other words, Jesus didn't go around telling everybody, I'm the Messiah, I'm the Messiah, believe in me, believe in me. It seems to be a polar opposite from the way the church operates today. We try to convince people that God sent Jesus and that he's risen from the dead. Jesus just did the works and said, believe the works. 
Which do you think is the better way? Was the church left here on the earth to just try to persuade people with flowery words of man's wisdom? Paul said that's not the way he preached. He wrote to the Corinthians and said, when I was among you, I spoke not by the the great words of man's wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and power. I wonder if that's why Paul got the results that he got. I wonder if that's how cities turned around in Paul's day when it's so much different today, the modern day. Now, I'm not throwing rocks at anybody because I assume that everybody's doing the best that they can. I'm just trying to point out what God's original intent must have been. See, Paul lived in a day when the resurrection of Jesus was a historical fact. People didn't question the resurrection of Jesus in mass because there was enough eyewitness testimony to it that at at the very least it made everybody wonder. And it's not like when the people testified of Jesus being raised from the dead that they got something or gained an advantage for themselves. Many times it brought persecution and trouble, but they still stuck to their story. That was one of the greatest witnesses in the early days of the church. People weren't telling stories that benefited them individually or created a social advantage for themselves. They were telling a story that brought persecution and hardship. And in the midst of that persecution and hardship, they doubled down on the message. So Jesus said, He answered him, we'll read this again, verse uh, 25. I told you, and you believe not the works that I do in my Father's name. They bear witness of me, but you believe not because you are not of my sheep, as I said unto you. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give unto them eternal life. Now, remember, he's talking to the Pharisees. He's talking to the doctors of the law. They're trying to find out, at least they said they're trying to find out, is Jesus really the Messiah? My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. My Father which which gave them me is greater than all, and no man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. Now, if you were one of the Pharisees, and you were genuinely interested, you knew there was a Messiah that was promised, there was somebody that was was prophesied and foretold that he would come and when he was foretold that he would come he was was foretold that he would come in power now jesus comes doing miracles that nobody's ever done before stuff nobody's ever seen or heard of and so if you are sincerely interested in the things of god you'd have to wonder and, and i can Honestly, I can understand how many of them wouldn't just sign on right away. You want to prove it out? You want to make sure and and so forth? Yeah, okay, I got that. That's fine. But now Jesus is answering, and he said, the work should be enough to convince you, but you're not one of my sheep. In other words, you've passed the point of legitimate inquiry and, and research, discovery. Now you're at the place where you're just not going to believe no matter what. But my sheep that hear my voice, I know them and they know me. I'll give them eternal life. Now, what Pharisee would not have stopped right there? What doctor of the law, what person familiar with the Old Testament covenant and the promises and, that were foretold, what person would not stop right there and say, wait, 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 eternal life? What do you mean? See, if they're sincere, they just got enough information to inquire further. But that's not what they do. They totally miss that Jesus said that he'd give people eternal life. Now remember, this is John's gospel. John was the last of the four gospels that was written. And it was written some 60 plus years after Jesus was raised from the dead. All the other three gospels are well known by John. 
And he's filling in the blanks and telling us things that the other writers didn't give us. Eyewitness testimony. John was there and he gives us this account to tell us how plain it was for people to be able to see and understand that Jesus was the Messiah. So what do the Pharisees do? What do the religious people do? Verse 31, then the Jews took up stones again to stone him. Okay, he's just talked about the works that he's done. He's talked about giving those that believe in him eternal life. He's talked about being one with the Father. And they want to kill him. What do they want to kill him for? Jesus answered them, verse 32, Many good works have I showed you from my Father. For which of these works do you stone me? Jesus was so cool. The Jews answered him saying, for a good work, we stone thee not, but for blasphemy and because that thou being a man makest thyself God. Now, how did he make himself God? He said, me and my father and I are one. My father and I are one. Now, what does that mean? Stop and think about it from Jesus' perspective. When Jesus said, my father and I are one, what does that mean? That does not mean that he's part of the Godhead. Because he laid aside his heavenly power and glory and came to the earth and, and became a man. For the purpose of suffering death for mankind. So what does he mean my father and I are one? Well he means we're one in spirit. He means I'm operating under the power of God because I'm anointed. Acts 10.38 how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Ghost and power. Who went about doing good and healing all that were oppressed of the devil for God was with him. Jesus had to have emptied himself according to Philippians 2. He had to have emptied himself of his heavenly power and glory to be anointed of God. Because how can you anoint God? Who's going to anoint God? Is God going to anoint himself? It would be impossible for God to anoint Jesus except that Jesus first emptied himself of his heavenly power and glory. And became in, in fashion as a man. Took upon a human body. But once he has a human body. Made a little lower that puts him in a position where he was where it's described as made a little lower than the Elohim he's certainly a little lower than his original state before he came to the earth and in that condition and in that state because he is one in spirit with God the father God anoints him with the holy ghost and that's when the miracles and the signs and the wonders begin that Jesus referenced so the Jews said we're not killing you for any of the good works that you did. We're going to kill you because you made yourself equal with God. Notice that they understood what equal with God means. Equal with God means one in spirit, empowered and enabled to do the works of God as his offspring. In other words, made after his kind and after his image. Doing the same works as the father. Remember, that's what Jesus said over and over again. The works that I do, I do not of myself. The Father in me, he doeth the works. In other words, he's saying the miracles that I'm doing are miracles after God's kind. Because I've been made in the image and the likeness of him, I'm producing fruit after his kind, which is the law of Genesis. It's the law whereby this whole world operates. Jesus goes further. Verse uh, 34, Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law, I said you are gods? Jesus is going to preach them a sermon from Psalm 82 that they know well. We'll look at Psalm 82 in just a minute, but let's read a little bit of this. Jesus answered them and said, it is, is it not written in your law that I said you are gods? If he called them gods unto whom the word of God came and the scripture cannot be broken, say ye of him whom the father has sanctified and sent into the world, thou blasphemest because I said I am the son of God. If I do not the works of my father, believe me not. But if I do, though you believe not me, believe the works that you may know and believe that the father is in me and I in him. Therefore, they sought again to take him, but he escaped out of their hand. 
Now turn back with me to Psalm 82. Let's see what Jesus is referring to. Now, folks, I want you to understand something while you're turning. When it comes to Jesus being the Messiah, there's a lot of stuff Jesus could have said. He could have told them about the virgin birth. He could have reminded them one after the other of miracles and signs and wonders and stuff that he did. He could have told them about the voice that came from heaven when he was anointed by John in the Jordan River, baptized by John in the Jordan River. This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. He could have brought into question any and all of those things to try to prove who he was. But he preaches them a sermon out of John, out of Psalm 82. He refers to something in the Old Testament that substantiates confirms his position and the things that he said and i want you to see what those things are verse 6 is the is the verse that he quotes in john chapter 10 i have said you are gods and all of you are children of the most high but you shall die like men and fall like one of the princes now in order to understand what he's talking about we're going to have to back up to verse 1 it's only seven or eight verses so let's just read the whole thing God stands in the congregation of the mighty and judges among the gods. Now, the word Elohim is used twice here. Elohim standeth in the congregation of the mighty and he judges among the gods. Elohim. Now, we might ask, what is it talking about here? Who's he standing in the midst of? And some people say, and you get a lot of religious people who hate the idea of man having dominion. Who hate the idea of being one with God born again, being made righteous and and, uh, without condemnation in his sight. They'll say, well, God's judging among the Elohim. Really? Let's keep reading. How long will you judge unjustly and accept the persons of the wicked? Can that be talking about God? Is God saying that the Holy Ghost and Jesus are judging unrighteously or wickedly? No. No. Doesn't mean that at all. Back to verse 1. It says, Elohim standeth in the congregation of the mighty. The word mighty literally means strength. But it specifically refers to the strength of God. So we could say it this way. We could translate it this way. God stands in the congregation of the strong ones in God. And judges among the gods. The Elohim. How long will you judge unjustly and accept the persons of the wicked? Defend the poor and fatherless. Do justice to the afflicted and needy. Deliver the poor and needy. Rid them out of the hand of the wicked. They know not, neither will they understand. They walk on in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are out of course. I have said, you are Elohim. And all of you are children of the Most High. In other words, what it's saying is talking about how that the old, in the Old Testament, God called man God's. Why? Because he was made a little lower than the Elohim. Now, we're treading on thin ice here. I understand that we're walking a a razor-thin edge here because some people have done damage by uh, emphasizing the God's part. Man is a God. Man is God of the earth and all this kind of stuff. And, And frankly, they've done a lot of damage to people, individuals and congregations as well because of one simple thing and that is there's one perspective that you can talk about this where man is glorified and there's another perspective that you can talk about it where jesus is glorified well the holy ghost will only glorify jesus and not man so when we talk about gods where the bible says and and remember jesus is the one quoting this so if we want to know god's perspective or god's attitude toward these verses Jesus is the one that gave them to us himself. Jesus said, remember Psalm 82, where I said, I meaning God, said, you, mankind, are gods, little g. In other words, rulers of the earth and the ones that have dominion. Because you've been made a little lower than the Elohim. Are you with me? I don't want somebody going out of here saying that they're a god. 
Because God's literally means the one who has dominion or the one who rules. And Jesus said, when the Jews accused him of making himself one with God, Jesus said, God called man gods here on the earth. Well, he did, didn't he? And he encourages man to judge righteously, to defend the needy and help the the widows and, and so forth. That's what Psalm 82 is about. To do the works of God the Father because you've been given dominion here on the earth. But you can't escape the simple fact that man was created and Jesus identifies that man is the one that has authority here on the earth. He has been given dominion to rule and reign over the earth. And that's Jesus' argument. That's his justification for being equal with God. That's his defense. Even the Old Testament says that mankind was created to be gods here on the earth, rulers, the one with dominion. Then Jesus makes the point, if that were written of those to whom the word came, how much more true is that of me whom the Father has sanctified and sent to die for the sins of mankind? And that's what they wanted to kill him for. That's what they wanted to kill him for. Folks, the persecution that the word of faith group, I hate to call it that, but I don't know what else to call it. The persecution that the word of faith group in the church has endured over the last however long decades has all come down to one thing. And that is the, the exercise of authority through the confession of your mouth. That's where the rub is on the word of faith movement. It's not a movement. The word of faith is, is the, just the gospel of Jesus, not a movement. But you understand when I say use those terms. I, I don't know what else. To, if there's a better term to use, if there's a better way to say it, somebody let me know and, and, and I will. But I'm trying to just say it in a way that you'll understand what I mean. The part of the church that's called the word of faith group, we're criticized for one And one basic thing, there may be offshoots of it, but it all comes down to the same foundational truth, and that is we're criticized because we preach authority through the spoken word. And it shouldn't be a surprise because that's what they wanted to kill Jesus for. That's what they wanted to kill Jesus for. So man was created after God's kind. Or in his image. He was created after his likeness. Or to operate in the same way as God does. Have you ever noticed. That the Bible doesn't tell man one word. About how to exercise the dominion. In the creation story. Let us make man in our own image. And let him have dominion over the works of our hands. God breathes life into man. And said be fruitful and multiply. And replenish the earth. And have dominion over everything that's here. Why didn't he tell him how? How is it that God didn't give him a detailed list. An instruction manual. For here's how you exercise authority. Because Genesis 1 is the instruction manual. On how to exercise authority. Man is to exercise authority. And to operate in the earth in the same way that God did. Because man is created after God's own kind. How did God operate? Ten times in Genesis 1 it says, and God said. And God said. There was no power exercised whatsoever in the earth until God spoke. It tells us that the Spirit of the Lord moved, or the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, Spirit of God moved over the waters. But that didn't exercise any power. Didn't create one thing to happen. The Spirit of God was present. But nothing took place until God said. And when God said, let there be light, that's what modern science now calls the Big Bang Theory occurred. That was the Big Bang. God's word, let there be light. How are we supposed to operate? We're supposed to pray that God will work, that God will move, 
No, you're supposed to operate after his kind, in his image. You're supposed to exercise authority by the spoken word. Now, again, when you talk about Jesus referring to man being gods in Psalm 82, you are gods and so forth, notice there are parameters, there are boundaries. Adam was given dominion over the earth, instruction to exercise authority within God's scheme and plan. Well, what's God's scheme and plan now? That which is revealed by the word. So the authority that we're to exercise in the earth is through the spoken word, us speaking God's word. And it stills the enemy and the avenger. No matter how weak you seem to be, no matter how young in the things of God you might be, out of the mouth of babes and sucklings, Thou hast ordained strengths because of thine enemies. For what purpose? To steal the enemy and the avenger. You've been given authority over all the works of the devil through the resurrection of Jesus. Amen? We'll talk more about this as we go. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the privilege that we have to read and study your word. We thank you, Father, that your word is true. What a privilege it is, Father, to know that you've given mankind authority. Your plan for creation was for man to have dominion over the works of your hands. Man lost that dominion through Adam's sin and transgression, but it's been regained through the redemptive work of Jesus. Now, all authority has been given unto Jesus in heaven and earth, so he told us that he'd use it in heaven and we are to use it in the earth. Thank you, Father. That as we speak your word, your word comes to pass. Thank you, Father, that as we speak the truth that's revealed in the scripture and that which belongs to us through the shed blood of Jesus and his resurrection, we thank you, Father, that the enemy is is stilled, stopped in his tracks. We thank you, Father, that everything that Jesus purchased for us is ours. And as we speak it into existence, it becomes a reality for us. We declare that we have authority over all the works of the devil in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. God bless you. Thank you for being with us.